I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out and all dropped off But I Welcome to another corny episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we sift through the young adult fiction of yesteryear and pull forth either sparkling gems or treasures left behind by the cat of Miss Plinkett down the road. On alternate episodes, we read books that were released in the last two decades. Wow, we might have to shift that goalpost. My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the immortal Bree. Hola. Oh, we've moved around the languages a little bit. I get surprised when we're not doing like your traditional French. Ah, so my minor was in Spanish. Oh, right. Okay, so we can take a detour. And then my other minor was German, but I try not to converse in that. <laughs> Laurie will do that for you. Anyway, sorry. Brie, I'm mm-hmm. quite disturbed that you've been playing around with so many international minors, but anyway. Oh, oh dear. Oh, dear. The hard hat type ah, yeah. to save you from taking us there. <laughs> uh, the pressure's on you two boys now, obviously, for your response. The Sempaternal, Patrick Moon. Uh, Donde esta la biblioteca? <laughs> and the everlasting Keith Rowe. Bonsoir. Oh, nice. I like it. This episode, I've taken us all on a scenic traipse around Cornwall with Susan Cooper's immutable mystery... Come magical realism, classic, oversee, under stone. You book stealer. <laughs> First book in the Dark is Rising sequence. Before its mysteries are untombed, a warning. If you want to enjoy this episode, you're going to be hugely advantaged by reading the book. If you haven't read it and have had it on your to-read list for the last 50 years, then you're probably better off avoiding this episode for now, and also reconsidering your approach to time management. <laughs> this episode will feature... Meddling kids, absentee parents, inventory management, mystery, intrigue, and a few hunters and collectors on a search for the Holy Grail. Now, Patrick. (laughs) Not not really. (laughs) I was about to say, what the hell do you know about inventory Inventory management? management. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then I realised you've played Skyrim, so you'll know all about it. Yeah. And Bree still doesn't know what it means. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Happily. Patrick, can you please carry us away to coastal England with page one? I can. Where is he? Barney hopped from one foot to the other as he clambered down from the train, peering in vain through the white-faced crowds flooding eagerly to the St. Austell ticket barrier. Oh, I can't see him. Is he there? Of course he's there, Simon said struggling to clutch the long canvas bundle of his father's fishing rods. He said he'd meet us, with a car. Behind them, the big diesel locomotive hooted like a giant owl, and the train began to move out. "'Stay where you are a minute,' father said from a barricade of suitcases. "'Mary won't vanish. Let people get clear.' Jane sniffed ecstatically. "'I can smell the sea!' "'We're miles from the sea,' Simon said loftily. "'I don't care. I can smell it.' Twisick's five miles from St. Austell, Grand Uncle Mary said. Oh, where is he? 
Barney still jigged impatiently on the dusty grey platform, glaring at the disappearing backs that masked his view. Then suddenly he stood still, gazing downwards. Hey, look! They looked. He was staring at a large black suitcase among the forest of shuffling legs. What's so marvellous about that? Jane said. Then they saw that the suitcase had two brown pricked ears and a long waving brown tail. Its owner picked it up and moved away, and the dog, which had been behind it, was left standing there alone, looking up and down the platform. He was a long, rangy, lean dog, and where the sunlight shafted down on his coat, it gleamed dark red. Barney whistled and held out his hand. "'Darling, no,' said his mother plaintively, clutching at the bunch of paintbrushes that sprouted from her pocket like a tuft of celery. But even before Barney whistled, the dog had begun trotting in their direction, swift and determined, as if he were recognising old friends.' He loped round them in a circle, raising his long red muzzle to each in turn, then stopped beside Jane and licked her hand. "'Isn't he gorgeous?' Jane crouched beside him and ruffled the long silky fur of his neck. "'Darling, be careful,' Mother said. "'He'll get left behind. He must belong to someone over there.' "'I wish he belonged to us.' "'So does he,' Barney said. "'Look.' He scratched the red head and the dog gave a throaty half-bark of pleasure. "'No,' Father said." The crowds were thinning now, and through the barrier they could see clear blue sky out over the station yard. His name's on his collar, Jane said, still down beside the dog's neck. She fumbled with the silver tab on the heavy strap. It says, Rufus, and something else, Chuisic. Hey, he comes from the village. But as she looked up, suddenly the others were not there. She jumped to her feet and ran after them into the sunshine, seeing in an instant what they had seen. The towering familiar figure of great Uncle Mary out in the yard, waiting for them. Arigato, Pat. I don't know if that was too long. No, that was a perfect stopping point, I would have said. You still haven't got to anything interesting, so that's fine. <laughs> I think you're making a good point there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think we can skip Bree in the what did I think of page one <laughs> states tonight. <laughs> what about you, Laurie? <laughs> Do you concur? Well, you know what happened to me while I was reading this initially? Let's see. Lovely setting, full of old world magic potential. Check. Bunch of kids in a strange place arrived by a train accompanied by owl noises. Check. A tall, strange, bearded, uncle-type character with a nice pet dog. Check. Loving parents that are alive, healthy and part of the story. (laughs) WTF! (laughs) I was momentarily surprised, nay, shocked, that these kids had parents. I had to laugh at myself because I've gotten so used to a child or teen protagonist being an orphan that them being alive, the parents being alive, is a real oddity. They're sort of conveniently excised from the plot as it goes on, though. (laughs) Don't get too far ahead of yourself. Yeah, I was going to say, this is the first and last. (laughs) (laughs) No, they do pop up occasionally, but they're certainly not heavily featured. But even so, being alive in the first place feels like a major achievement compared to some of the books we've read. I'm pretty sure there was a line halfway through, Father saw something shiny and wandered off for three days. (laughs) (laughs) I figured they were off to a sex party or something, but anyway. This particular page one doesn't really hit me with flashing neon signs that scream approaching awesome, but I kind of got the feeling that it might be one of those classic British slow burn fantasies, something akin to the weird stone of Brisingarmen which, spoiler alert, might be my next pick for an older book. What about this says to you that it's a fantasy, page one? No, probably the back of the book more than anything. Hmm. So I was settling in for the journey fairly comfortably at this point. Keith? To answer Bree's point, nothing about this does say fantasy. And when I read this, I was thinking this is just a cookie cutter plot starting point. So it didn't have me interested 
reticent of the lost jewels of Nabuti. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't have me very interested, but I did like this cool dog that has been introduced here, so it was obviously going to play a part at some stage. <laughs> we must be scraping the bottom of the barrel when we're like, there was a cool dog. Uh, yeah, cool dog. Yeah, I'm all it about was... the cool dog. Bree. It's missing a hook. So mm. I think we've discussed this on most episodes, but it's nice to have a link of some description to where the story might end up going so that you're interested to read more. Actually, as I was re-listening to page one as Pat was going through, I thought, oh, this must be a book about character development. Keith might love this intro, but no. Sadly not. Pat? It was a little bit long-winded, I thought, in its exposition and discussion of people arriving on train platforms and things. And I have to say that I began to feel a bit of a sense of dread when I started reading it for the first time. Mm. Tell us a bit more about it, maybe. I will read the synopsis from the book and just give a little bit of an additional elaboration. So thank you, Susan Cooper, for saving me some work or your editor. On holiday in Cornwall, Simon, Jane and Barney Drew discover an ancient map in the attic of the Grey House where they are staying with mysterious Great Uncle Mary. They know immediately that it is special. But it is much more than just a map. It is the start of a quest to find a grail, a source of great power that could contain or resurrect the powerful age-old forces of evil in the world. And the Drews are not the only ones searching for it. So some of the other things that I thought would be really relevant to the synopsis are that the youngest child, Barney, has a real interest in the history and tales of King Arthur and Arthurian legends, and that provides a fairly solid framework for this, I've written here, for a modern-day mystery adventure. But it's actually set in 1960s or 70s Cornwall, so in a village life, and it has this interesting weave of living by the seaside, kids running wild, having picnics and going on adventures. They determine that the aforementioned map may be hundreds of years old and they are pitted against the forces of dark, which in this story are represented by a mysterious man in a hat who poses as a vicar and his other dark agents, which include like a local ruffian and another couple of antique dealers on their quest to discover the resting place of the supposed Arthurian grail. They endure a bit throughout the story. They're chased through the streets, followed by the forces of the dark, and Barney is kidnapped, all while trying to discover the final resting place of the Grail, which, of course, they end up finding, and any link to what it may or may not be able to do is, of course, lost to the sea. And then they donate it to the British Museum. They get £100. <laughs> I know. I thought, should I Google how much £100 would be worth? Did anyone do that? Because I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, what a, what a pittance the museum has given these children who risked life and limb for this stupid cup. Well, it seems like sight more than Indiana Jones ever got. I'm looking up £100 from 1970. 65 it was written, so presumably prior to that. All right, 1965. la da 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 pounds. I mean, that's not bad, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Three little kids getting six hundred bucks each. That's mm. all right. Oh, six hundred pounds, mm. so about a thousand bucks each. Yeah. Well, congrats, kids. <laughs> <laughs> so I left out a fair bit of light and dark in that story, but Maybe before we get on to talking about what we think of it, Laurie, why did you steal this book from me, you 
can't choose your own story. Well, I wasn't sure you were going to call him then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this is veering into far more explicit territory than we've been used to. I really should have come up with a decent insult before this, but you book-stealing <laughs> mofo. I, well, I think we can edit it so that you did. It sounded like you did. You <laughs> book-stealing mofo. The hound would be proud. I don't have that many books on the list to start with, and you choose one of the very few, actually probably the only fantasy I ever read before Seeking Tumnus. Oh, except Harry Potter. Yeah, Laurie, you can't do this to her. Except Harry Potter. You can't, can you? I mean, this is the only one. (laughs) Why are you chuckling like a force of dark and evil? Go and sit with Professor Hastings or whatever. You can't imagine why. (laughs) Anyway, why did you steal it, Laurie? Well... I'd been under the misapprehension that I'd read it for quite some time. And a few years back, I think, I read the back of the book and went, Oh, Spaghettios! <laughs> I've not, actually. And then some genius had the idea of starting a podcast, and I figured one of us would slot it in at some stage, so I held off. It was actually one that Bree, as you've just heard at length, had added to the list, so I waited and waited, as Bree picked all sorts of weird and wonderful books ahead of it. <laughs> You've got hundreds on the list. Despite having strongly considered Isabel Carmody's The Gathering for this particular episode. Which I don't care two hoots about. And then having discussed it at length with Keith, who was a bit... Keith, did you endorse this type of behaviour? Against the idea. I opted for Oversee Understone. Isabel, if you're listening, I'll get to you soon. So, no real attachment to this book. Just wanted to be a bastard. I just know that it was one that was popular once and reprinted many times. I see new covers and box sets pop up every now and again. So, it was just time. Just an opportunistic sort of robbery. You saw a door that was unlocked and you thought you'd creep in and see what was sitting on the table. I thought I'd read it. If I'd known that I hadn't have read it, definitely would have wanted to. And I actually have a copy of it. So I'm not sure how that happened. I had the opposite experience. I didn't think I had read it. And then as I'm reading it, I thought, oh, I have read this. Mm. At some point in the recesses of my mind, I realised that I had read it. Mm. I've read a couple of very similar books, I think. In fact, I read one particularly good book that I cannot find about dragons that are born in Cornwall. Cornwall seems like a pretty awesome place. (laughs) But yes, I really wanted to and thought I had. And when I discovered I hadn't, I couldn't continue waiting. So I picked it. Can you share your thoughts? Yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) If you can gather yourself. (laughs) Uh, I have a really strong memory of this book from when I was 12. This was the first book that I actually read when I entered high school, which is a fairly momentous occasion. And it's certainly not the type of story that I would ever, as you would all know, have picked up without it having been on a compulsory book list. It holds a really special place in my memory because I remember that I was only required to read the first one and I've actually got a book which has all five of the the Susan Cooper stories in it. And I was only required to read the first one, but I actually devoured all five. So it was interesting to go back to this and find it still kind of spooky and quite fun and a really nice mystery with hints of seaside life almost like a romantic view of the English countryside and English holiday life, which I really liked. I remember liking the little sort of hints of magic and it not being in your face, and I still really quite liked that. It was this hint of legend and tales of the Knights of the Round Table and those sorts of things, but 
in a more modern day setting of the 1960s. Uh, <laughs> and I like following the clues. I've always quite enjoyed a, a very sneaky holiday read of a mystery story. And I like that this is an adventure with kids on a quest and looking out for each other and amusing themselves. And I really quite liked that. There you go. There's my thoughts. Thank you. So, Pat, what did you think? I feel similarly to you. There wasn't an awful lot of fantasy to it. I was a little bit let down in that respect because I'm so used to great dollops of magic and swords and sorcery and dragons and all sorts when I'm reading a fantasy book. And this didn't really deliver in that respect. It may as well have been a simple seaside holiday read. And that would have been fine for me, but it wasn't necessarily what I was expecting. And I kind of wanted it to fall into one camp or the other. I felt once I saw that they were just reading a map, basically, and hunting for this treasure of the the grail and all that kind of thing, I was really invested in that. It was kind of a scaled down Indiana Jones mystery for kids, essentially, just running around looking at their treasure map and figuring out where to go to find the next thing. And then once the Arthurian legends started to get woven into it, I felt it took away some of the realism that I was actually quite enjoying up to that point. The good guy, bad guy element I thought was more interesting before we actually had this reincarnated evil figure in the vicar or Hastings, as he came to be called throughout the story. So... That was a little bit of a letdown, but not enough to dilute my enjoyment of what was ultimately just a really good adventure romp, albeit a simplistic one. The clues that they followed to get to the map were largely visual. There was no way for you to follow along to figure out what was happening in your own mind before the kids managed to do it, which I think is one of the great pleasures of a genuine, well-written mystery novel is that you can kind of piece it together a little bit and go, hey, I feel really clever right now because I have clued this all out. I've puzzled it out before the protagonist has managed to get there. Whereas this is like, oh, there's a sun shining on a hill and we need to just look at the direction, the shadow points, and that will lead to a cave, which leads to another cave, which leads to another cave, which leads to a mountain and so on and so forth. And it didn't really have that real mystery punch, nor did it have the fantasy punch. So falling somewhere in the middle. It's like a nice entry point to fantasy, I think. I guess, but perhaps the other books drag it more into the realm of fantasy. But this is not really a fantasy book. A bit of magical realism, for sure. But you could read it entirely straight-faced without a a fantastic element in it at all it kind of hints towards the legend of arthur and there are these people who are allegedly some group of evil conspirators who have existed throughout the ages but there's no real reason to believe that over any other interpretation other than you're taking the words of the lunatic mary at face value they do seem to exhibit a form of compulsion kind of magic though oh yeah Mm. that's true they make themselves seem bigger than they are and more terrifying than they are. And once yeah. that magic is dispelled by Uncle Mary, then that all disappears and they realise they're just normal-sized humans. And they also compelled one of the children to do something or start to do something before the magic was interrupted by a dog's howl or something. And then once the magic was dispelled, he was free of their glamour and could run off. Yeah, absolutely. There are certainly elements of it there. I just don't feel they run deep enough to warrant sitting on the fantasy shelf. But Mm. I know nothing about the series. I know nothing about the other books. And so, you know, that's my completely uneducated opinion, which is my favourite type of opinion 
willing to give. <laughs> we give it often. <laughs> <laughs> it's our modus operandi. I really enjoyed it. I went along for the ride and I thought it was a lot of fun. It dragged a little bit at times. The number of pages to the number of actual things that happened in the book I thought was a little bit inflated. And the only other thing that I would like to comment on was the astounding racism in the early <laughs> section when they're going on an adventure mm. and they're talking about the in the house and they're pretending to be explorers and talking about the natives and things mm. and you read it and you're like holy crap could you do this like yeah cringe 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 have we moved that far in tween fiction since the 60s <laughs> that this stands out so incredibly badly it was hilarious in its egregiousness. What did you think about it, Keith? I had completely forgotten about that until you just mentioned it. I won't let that change what I'm about to say. So I'm not going to lie. Having completed the reading of this, I had a real sense of disappointment. And that was disappointment that I didn't know about this series when I was growing up. <laughs> As a boy, I think I would have loved the heck out of this. And I'd imagine even more so possibly the rest of the series, which I think... As Pat's hinted at, takes us more into fantasy. I'm not so, hinting. As I said, I'm just giving a completely uneducated stab <laughs> in the dark. Who the hell knows? It could be a World War II like drama. <laughs> Bree could fill us in, but I actually asked her before the recording not to give away any spoilers of the plot. So you could probably do it in general terms, mm. but I'm a bit scared because I actually want to read on. Does it take a fantastic twist, Bree? It does go more deeply into stronger elements of dark and light, yes. But it's not what I would consider extreme because otherwise there's no way I would have finished the series. <laughs> no offence. <laughs> and the second book, from what I've read, doesn't even include any of the kids from this book. No, it's not. It's about you do get Great Uncle Mary being woven through and there's another character that comes in and out. Maybe a few, I can't really remember. But it's not about the three kids from this one. It's not about them. And in fact, the kid in the next one, I think, is a bit older and things as well. So it moves on. It's more the clashes of dark and light than the specific characters. Yes, that's right. It's about the clashes of dark and light and how dark can invade everyday life and those sorts of things. Interesting. Mm. It is good. The second one I remember being quite good. Would you say it's the sort of dark that occurs when one person steals another's book choice on a podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Just the, the mundane kind of darkness that fills our hearts. Yeah, but I remember this kid wakes up and overnight has had this realisation. Spoilers. Oh, shut up. It happens at the start of the next book. And overnight has this realisation of what dark and light can be and he becomes like a force of light to fight the dark. He's a bit like Mary in some ways. A bit like Harry Potter. Yeah, I guess so. Anyway, you should read the next one, Laurie. I will. The next is the most popular in the series. Is it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Hmm. So as an adult reading this for the first time, I had no attachment to the characters or the content, and certainly the writing has aged. But after a tottering start, I eventually found my way right into this adventure, and I found it to be a refreshing, lightweight tale with just the right amount of danger and suspense, and an ensemble of interesting but simplistic characters. The language air was formal and dated, but it was descriptive and flowed quite well. Nothing sparkled particularly brightly, but despite the dated nature of the vocabulary, the writing didn't interrupt my enjoyment of the adventure, and it let the story build to a burgeoning pace as it developed to a tense and enthralling conclusion. Okay, that was talked up a bit. <laughs> Speaking of simplistic characters, did you find it very difficult at the beginning to tell apart the children? Yep. It took me quite a while before I realised they had any separate identity whatsoever. It was basically three interchangeable little idiots. 
<laughs> I don't think they were quite little idiots. Oh, that's a <laughs> that's bit a bit harsh. <laughs> the boys were harder to separate. Yeah. I found the sister had a bit more personality. If only one of them was the darker, more violent of the two, would hark us back to the Hardy Boys. But anyway. <laughs> so the language got the job done, I think, in terms of building tension. Yeah, the kids, they were a bit innocuous to begin with, but as the book went along, there was enough variation between them to separate them. And, of course, Rufus becomes the fourth in their little group. At some stage, he's the red settler that we were introduced to in page one there. They were also separated physically for a while as well at different times of the book, so that helped you distinguish them. Yeah, it did. It gave them their own chance to shine, which is what they all wanted to do, seemingly. The baddies, as Breeze mentioned there, they're all the agents of the dark, though that wasn't really mentioned in this book. I think that plays more into the following in the series. True. I was going to ask Laurie about info on that, but it's apparently Bree that I need to get that info from. And I liked that there was this mean-spirited kid that kept popping up and he was not an agent of the dark, but he'd been involved by the agents of the dark and he was constantly getting in their way and causing them bother. Can I just interject there and say that I was very disappointed that we didn't read a passage of Gumry or Great Uncle Mary bashing in the housemaid's head with a rock after she betrayed them? (laughs) A rock is better than a stick, is it? No, this is character that you think is nice from most of the book and she's the live-in kind of housekeeper that makes the meals and whatnot while they're staying in this house. And she turns around and betrays them and sends Uncle Mary off to a, another town and puts the kids in peril and she's kind of related to some of the bad characters in the book and it just came as a big surprise and I was really <laughs> pissed off. <laughs> Did you find that they were all a little bit oblivious to these clues that were staring them in the face? You, you found out that she was the aunt of the little shit of a child that Keith was just talking about quite early in the piece and you think maybe... They shouldn't trust Mm. this woman. Mm. And then they even say it to each other on several occasions. Maybe we shouldn't trust this person. I've heard they're really evil. And they're like, no, that can't be right. They're not evil. They have a nice smile. Well, then she does another nice thing and sends them off with another delicious picnic to cover our tracks. Yeah, they have their flaws. Yeah, Mm. in that they're completely oblivious. (laughs) They're very young. kids. They're not used to adults deceiving them on a grand scale. But it just seemed to happen so regularly when she says, oh, why don't you wander off without your Uncle Mary, who's your protector and saving you from the forces of darkness? They're like, oh, that's a good idea. Maybe we should just let him have a sleep in instead of protecting us from the forces of darkness. (laughs) (laughs) Talking of great Uncle Mary, he was quite enigmatic and you didn't really get a sense of who he was until the end when it became apparent that there was some mystery and some intrigue and some fantasy about him in general. You didn't guess it? I knew it was a fantasy book and you didn't get introduced to elements of fantasy early on, so I guess it's quite a logical conclusion to come to, but it didn't have to go that way. As soon as they mentioned Arthur, I picked it like a dirty nose. That Mary would be Merlin. Merriman. Yeah. It didn't have to be. Like Pat said, you could just play this one straight-laced and take out all the fantasy elements, and it was just a mystery. So it wasn't essential that he had these powers. He could have just been another absentee grown-up. Much like the ocean at the end of the lane. (laughs) He won't let it go. Well, I figured he was either Merlin... Or he had like a meth addiction or something. (laughs) (laughs) He was going off and shooting heroin for days on end and coming back. That's a different story, that one. (laughs) Speaking of absentee adults, the house that everybody is staying in gets robbed and trashed at a certain point in the book. It's a holiday home. The parents are staying there with their children. So that happens 
And then as near as I was able to read the book, the next day the parents say, oh, we're leaving town. We're, we're leaving you kids here in the house that was robbed last night and trashed and destroyed. I hope no one murders yeah. you. Anyway, have fun. <laughs> there was that surface level of worry that was just like, oh, yeah, hope nothing goes wrong. See ya. <laughs> Where did they go? They went to visit the art dealer's house or something, didn't mm. they? Or... Yeah, they did, but it went, they went to a place that makes me think of a song or a book or something. Oh, Penzance. <laughs> <laughs> Penzance. Yeah, I'd go off and see the Pirates of Penzance too. <laughs> Just leave your children to fend for themselves. The beautifully historic setting here was like a character unto itself, and it was described in pretty nice detail, I thought. As Pat said, you couldn't really get ahead of the kids in the adventure, but you could feel you're participating in their discoveries as they went. Mm. It was, in a way, a small coastal town mystery, which is so very English, just like the TV shows and books that are countless in their numbers from this era and before, which I liked. It was very quaint and likeable in that respect. The fantasy elements they were hinted at, but they weren't ever really fully substantiated. And I think as an entry point to the series, this works really well. If you're looking for pure fantasy, Pat and Laurie, you won't find it here. That said, the trace mixing of legend and folklore into the story was pretty seamless. And this was really enjoyable as it does set the series up for a more grounded and believable foray into fantasy. Was it seamless though? I don't know. As far as I interpreted it, it was. That plays to the fact that you could remove it and it was still an entertaining story. You didn't need the elements of magic or fantasy in there. So that's how I took it as being seamless. Yeah, your mileage may vary. I see it more as almost a bit redundant, which was where I felt it sat uncomfortably between the two worlds. It wasn't blended in that magical realism sense in the same way that something like Tim Winton's writing might be, for example. But yeah, take it as you will. I don't mind a little bit of British subtlety in that regard. And it sounds like it changes in the subsequent books anyway. It does go more heavily into it. I don't know what you mean about magical realism with Tim Winton, though. Like, there's no hint of fantasy. It's just his descriptions that are quite beautiful. Well, that's what I like. I don't think it needs to be explicitly fantastic. I would have liked it to have been more more subtle, more blended. Hmm. Oh, there's a bit of fantasy in Tim Winton. Doesn't that guy have fantasies about choking himself <laughs> or something? <laughs> 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 Not that I want to minimise the quality tone. Oh my gosh. I feel we're getting way off track here. <laughs> and I love Tim Winton and one of the... Anyway. Most of my comments have been good to this point, but it wasn't all peachy. This is a book for children, so I was enjoying it with that very firmly in mind. It was basic and it was formulaic and it was largely very predictable. The characters were somewhat interchangeable and superficial. Trebisic, and we've had a few issues with it already, was the name of the fictional town where this plays out. When I was reading it, though, I was reading Treswick the whole time or most of the time, and I realised partway through the book that that wasn't actually the name of the town, but I wasn't going to change that. In summary, this was a fun and spirited adventure, reminiscent for me not only of some of the books that I read as a boy, including Tintin and some Enid Blyton and that sort of thing, and some of the movies I watched like Goonies and Indiana Jones, and even some of the adventure games I played like Day of the Tentacle and King's Quest. So despite not having actually read this book, it managed to fill me with a boyhood sense of nostalgia. It was refreshing to read something quaint, something light and well-written, the quaint and light parts are in contrast to some of the other books we've read recently, and the well-written is in contrast to the likes of Enid Blyton. 
Lori. <웃음> <웃음> 어. <웃음> 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 you know what? I'm going to read through all my notes and you're going to recognize Keith that in this particular episode you and I are very much aligned. A lot of my statements are going to very closely mirror yours, but before I get to it, I will just point out I feel a little bit guilty. Sometimes I pick probably mostly on Keith about choosing books that are for children rather than young adults, and here I've gone and picked a book that yeah does seem to be more towards children than young adults. Certainly, I guess if Bree had it as a text in year seven, that's on the very sort of cusp of high school, so... I feel I may have blundered there and I feel guilty for hammering you so hard when you <laughs> you go that direction, Keith. So my apologies. There's nothing wrong with a bit of hypocrisy, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding the book, it did not disappoint. I looked up Cornwall before and after the book and I loved having the book in this setting. I shared a link with a group today that was some touristy marketing site showing something like the top 10 castles in Cornwall and button my blouse if they weren't just incredible. I really do love a good English setting. That fantastic realism that comes with a country with deep roots and almost as many legends as there are counties. Picturing them getting around to those English cliffs and fields and seaside towns that I'd been ogling on the interwebs, it just really added to the magic. I was reminded of a few other books, some for the setting and some more for the feel. Weird Stone of Brisingamen, Moon of Gomroth, etc. from Ghana, The Whitby Witches by Robin Jarvis, and any number of Neil Gaiman books, but Stardust and The Ocean at the End of the Lane foremost. And even thematically mind, more than location-wise, a New Zealand book called Under the Mountain that I loved as a kid. All of those books sprung to mind, so I also had moments of nostalgia just reading that style of book. That sense of normal-ish adults that hold or are pursuing some sinister or powerful object, threatening kids or teens, racing them towards a goal on which the fate of the world rests, then those kids overcoming the adults by the slimmest of margins, as we saw in this book, and facing great peril to do so. Man, I could read that stuff forever. So really enjoyed it in this book. Up there with the seminal classic Rat Race starring John Cleese. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? There's not much about that movie that I recall, actually. Rowan Atkinson. (laughs) Was John Cleese even in it? (laughs) I think he would have been. Sounds right. He was. Yeah, he definitely was. (laughs) Anyway, carry on. Sorry. I gasped at one point, audibly. One of the sexy, well, I imagine sexy, bad folk, a woman springs up behind the children at one point and says, Ah, so you have found a map after all. I closed the book and couldn't read for a bit. Had a freezer been at hand, I may have very well sent it in oh, for a chillin'. God, you're getting old. <laughs> well, I think he's getting young. It probably took him back and it was that sort of, you're a child and you've just been busted with something by a parent or a grown-up. Oh, that's exactly the kind of thing that would have stressed me out a lot as a child. I really can't fault this book. No, it doesn't have the zing of a gaiman, and if you're expecting high fantasy, you'll be disappointed. But I think the book delivers a real sense of place and time. Apologies for the early racism, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) And the unfurling mystery didn't outlive its welcome, I felt, in a relatively short book. I'm happy to zip through the rest of the books, though I hope they grow outwards a little, and it's not just five episodes of Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo is a lead-in to Scrappy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no. Ooh, he wasn't actually that popular, was he? <laughs> I 
I guess the only criticism is be a bit more responsible with the goddamn parchments, will you, kids? Use a damn photocopier. <laughs> In 65? Yeah. Take a photo of it. Or you can copy it manually. All that. There apparently is a movie, but I only just saw that like an hour ago. Did you know that, Keith? Mm, there's not a movie of this book. There's only a movie of the next book. Oh, okay. And apparently it's an absolute piece of crap, so uh... yeah, I didn't even consider watching it based on the reviews and based on wanting to read the next book. Yeah, fair enough. Oh, if we had time, money and inclination, <laughs> we could have done our own fanfic <laughs> movie. Fan movie? Fan film? Never mind. This would be a great daytime movie, I reckon. For sure. Would you guys recommend this to young children today? Yes. I would, yep. Yeah. I'd probably talk to them about the savages or natives or whatever they were called in the early part of the book and and just talk them through how that's really dated and inappropriate. But the rest of the book, I think, is quite fine. I think it's really nicely written. The descriptions that we've been talking about of seaside Cornwall, I mean, it's just beautifully set. You can picture yourself there and at an age where you're reading it, probably, what, 10 through well, what was I, 12 or 13? I think even younger for this book you could go. There's nothing too bad. Mm. No, it's an exciting adventure. Like it is, mm. it's things that you'd like to do on your school holidays and run around with your friends instead of playing video games like King's Quest. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, oh no, Graham, I'm not going in there. Yes. It might be scary. I don't understand. I was hoping I'd hear that. When I mentioned King's Quest, I wasn't disappointed. <laughs> uh, I was desperate to blurt it out, but I'd already interrupted you a couple of times. I don't understand, obviously. Uh, King's Quest Five. What was the subtitle for that one? I'm not sure, but that was his owl friend that accompanied him and was very scared always. Yeah, he refused to go into the desert, little coward. <laughs> anyway... One of you mentioned dated language. Yeah. Was that you, Keith, or was it Pat? Well, I think probably all of us. Well, I thought, yes, it is dated language, and you sometimes had to sort of reread a line just to intuit its meaning. But I felt that more strongly set it in a place and time, mm. and I didn't mind it at all, actually. It didn't bother me an awful lot either, but then I like Arthur Conan Doyle and Dickens and whatnot. I find it a little bit endearing, actually. Mm. Maybe endearing's a bit diminutive, but it, it's nice. It's nice to get that real sense of place through the actual written narrative as well as the, the plot. Yeah, I agree. I just wondered whether that is applicable to children who might not have the same ability to acquaint it to the place and time. Maybe it's me being a stodgy old man, but I think it's good to expand the types of stuff that you're reading and the types of literature that you're comfortable reading, especially if you haven't been brought up with fantasy. It's probably good that you explore more fantasy, more and more fantasy. <laughs> yes, and also great to pick up on period language <laughs> No, and understand books in the context. Anyway, does anybody else other than Brie have a comment in about this? In the context this? of... The year and the era no, in which no. they were written by female authors no. and what that entails for them. <laughs> I thought we were going to go a hardcore, <laughs> faraway tree defence there, so that wasn't as bad as I was anticipating. <laughs> we have to reread that in this house every few oh. months, so I'm not going to defend it. I thought you were about to suggest we had to reread it on the podcast. <laughs> I was about I'm to out, quit yeah. on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> There's a person in this household who quite enjoys reading those stories. You've got to find something better, surely. Is it time for scoring with me? It is. Scoring LB. I'm shaking things up a little this episode. I will start reading, and you lot buzz in with your name. 
when you think you can ask a Jeopardy-style question that explains my list. Now, does everybody know what that means? No. Yes. So if I list red, blue, green, you would buzz in and say... Buzz, what are colours? What are colours? That's right. But you've got to buzz in with your name. So, Bree, Pat, Keith, do you all need to practice your buzzers? I think I'll be good. I think we've got them. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. One star, Barney, Simon and Jane. Two stars, Woodchucks, Hubert, Deuteronomy and Lewis. Three stars, Nathan Drake. Four stars, Lara Croft. You're all a bit slow. Buzz, what a video game protagonist, adventure protagonist. Wrong. Five stars, Indiana Jones. Keith. Yes? What are adventure protagonists? (laughs) Bree. Bree? They all go after the Holy Grail. Oh. Oh, So close. Does Nathan Drake, uh, he doesn't go after... I only know the first one and the last one. I only know five or one. I don't know what those other things are in the middle. I was going to ask you all to be very specific because I thought you were all going to get it so easily. They all go after a grail? Oh, pretty close. Pat, who are treasure hunters? I'd say that Pat's the closest. My answer is, what are amateur grave robbers that called untold damage to ancient sites, (laughs) pursuing and mishandling priceless artefacts that also kick ass in order of awesomeness on a not necessarily fixed scale? (laughs) Yeah, well, there you go. So you're pretty close, Pat. (laughs) Did you guess who two stars was, by the way? Who was two stars? I got really confused at the beginning and then I only started to coalesce at the end. What was two stars? It was Woodchucks, Hubert, Deuteronomy and Lewis. Deuteronomy is a book in the Bible. No idea. These are the real names of... The Goonies. Oh, so disappointed. There's so many 80s cartoon fans crying out in pain. Cities of Gold. Huey. Dewey Ah. Louie I thought Woodchucks would give it away Oh, what a failure It was a failure (laughs) Oh, well Nathan Drake is a protagonist And Lara Croft are both treasure hunter type archaeologists So, one star, Bunny, Simon, Jane Two stars, Huey, Dewey, Louie Three stars, Nathan Drake Four stars, Lara Croft Or five stars, Indiana Jones Mm, I would actually put Nathan Drake above Lara Croft But that's just me, I think I see, I haven't played enough of the Uncharted series to judge Mm. But I have played a pretty cracking Tomb Raider of late Very heavily Uncharted influenced (laughs) (laughs) All right, Keith? I'll go Lara Croft on this, it's four It's four stars, right, Bree? I gave it four stars It's a Lara Croft, two Lara Crofts Gosh, Patrick? Yeah, it's another Lara Croft. I also give it four. I had a rollicking good time with this. Great. I'll go Lara Croft as well. So, Lara's all round. Good book stands the test of time. Good selection. This is why you took it. Laurie gets all the credit for taking, uh, picking this one. Well done, Laurie. Fantastic choice, Laurie. <laughs> he's trying to jump up the rating scores. <laughs> he must be way down the bottom and he's trying to recoup some points. <laughs> oh, you wait till you hear my outro. Mm. I accuse somebody else of that. <laughs> it won't be me <laughs> I gave up the chase when I played Master of Murder Can't be me, because I didn't even get to keep my book <laughs> Pick it earlier, instead of Little Women <laughs> I refer you to Pat's earlier point about how important it is to read books from other times Like the 80s 
<laughs> it's actually the 90s. Mm. I don't know oh, why yeah. I said 80s then. I can't believe it's been 20 years from the cutoff point. I think we might have to shift it forward a decade. <laughs> Sadly now, we sing again to each and every one. Gladly that we'll come back again and all have fun with Sick and Tomness and all our friends. Wish it never <laughs> had to end. What was that? It was so familiar at the start. It really rang a bell. Yeah. Who's our favourite TV star? Who comes on with a wham? Keep going, keep going. No. I'm so close. Porky Pig. Uh, Our favourite ham. If you'd like to chip in your two cents, suggest a book, share a video of you singing the Porky Pig theme song, or offer us all an all-expenses-paid trip to Cornwall flying Pendragon Airlines... And we are available on Facebook and Twitter at Seeking Tumnus. In our next episode, Keith has taken a leaf from Patrick's book and picked an award-winning, bestseller, modern classic that's almost certainly going to be a circle jerk of positivity. (laughs) I'll have to be very creative if I'm going to keep the dream alive. What have you picked, Keith? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that I've taken a leaf from your book as well because this had your name against it. I've chosen The Book Thief. Oh! (laughs) Oh, It's getting nasty in Tumnus Land. By? By Marcus Zusak. Is that how you say it? (laughs) Yeah. You've seen how I asked you to read the book name. The Book Thief. (laughs) The Book Thief, yes. So you're thiefing the book. I am. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing work, Keith. I'm looking forward to the challenge, that's for sure. I've really been wanting to read this, actually, so well done. Me too. Me three. I wonder if I can get away with not reading it for the second time. I'm joking. I will reread it. (laughs) (laughs) Until then, remember that amateur grave robbery is fine if it ends up in a museum. Right, Gummery? Right, Indy? Right, Uncle Scrooge? And keep reading. I don't care. I can smell it. Tresiwick's Truisic? Truisic. How do you say it? Truisic? Sure. I would have said Tresiwick. Truisic, yeah. Truisic. Tresiwick? How's it spelled? True or Tres? Trewisic. Truisic. Page one with all these stupid place names. Who cares? I mean, only one third of our listeners are from the UK and they're just (laughs) banging their heads against the wall. Go on. Well, that place doesn't exist, so you can go however you like. Oh, does it not? Indiana Jones. Mmm, yeah. Freak.